The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I will be your host today, your hostess with the mostest. Jason will not be in the studio today, but we have a very interesting interview. This is episode number 131. And our interview today is with an, a gorgeous lady named Alexis Johnson. Alexis is a 35-year-old woman who resides in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. On July 13th of last year, Alexis celebrated three years clean and sober, means she's four years this year. She has suffered everything imaginable, but I'm not going to give you the details. I'm going to let her do that. She's an international fitness model. She's made two magazine covers, and she has been published in one of the most prestigious magazines in America. She's a published author, and will tell us about her memoir. Without further ado, let's talk to Alexis Johnson. Thank you. <laughs> Alexis, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you being willing to share your story. Thank you so much, Joni. I, I can't tell you how amazing it is for you and your organization to have me on the podcast. I've heard so much about you. Um, it's a podcast I've listened to. I have a lot of friends that have been on it, such as Tim Ryan and, um, you know, his new girlfriend and, uh, it, it's just such a strong recovery community that's out there, especially with an online presence that helps so many people. And I'm extremely grateful to be a part of it. So thank you. Well, thank you. I I just think that there are, are people who have stories who, you know, maybe don't want to tell their stories for whatever reason. And I can respect that. But I know that the people who listen to this podcast they have something has to ring with them on pretty much every story they hear. And if your story doesn't resonate with one person, I know it's going to resonate with five different people. And I it, it's so important because this situation, this problem with addiction affects everybody. And it's not just the people who are former addicts or who are addicted now, or even their friends and family, it affects literally everybody in our country and across the world. And so mm-hmm. when someone such as yourself is willing to tell their story, it I think it's huge. Thank you. Uh, I actually dealt with a lot of backlash in the beginning um, from a lot of people that said, you know, you're doing this for the wrong reasons. You're doing this to get famous or to make money. And What people didn't know about my story is that I spent probably close to $100,000 traveling the country, speaking for free, sharing my experience um, to the point where I actually put myself in a financial hole just to be able to go out there and spread the message of hope because I was so grateful for that opportunity I had been given. Um, My story is just It's not better. It's not worse than anybody else's. It's just my story. And I went through a lot of trials and tribulations to get where I am today. And I truly do feel blessed. And I would do anything, move mountains for anybody if they decided that they wanted to get sober. And I was just telling somebody today that the sad, true reality of it is that the generation that is starting to use now is getting younger and younger and the youngest person I have ever had to get into a treatment facility was 11 years old. 
Oh. It, it breaks my heart. It breaks my I, uh, heart. Oh. You know, we were we were talking and we said, what happened to the days where, like, the worst thing that happened was you got drunk or you smoked weed or you got into a fist fight on the weekend. Now it's, you know, your 11-year-old is, is getting arrested for selling tools at school or shooting meth or, you know, these young teenage girls are selling their bodies to get their next fix and they're like, 14. I can't wrap my mind around that, Joni. And it's, <laughs> I don't want to say it's too far gone, but it's definitely a mountain that we as America need to come together and try and prevent the next generation from following in some of our footsteps. I completely agree. But Alexis, do me a favor and take me back to the beginning. Take me back to the beginning of where you first got started having a, tr- a problem with drugs. Absolutely. Uh, so when I share my story, uh, the first thing I say is I, I come from the other side of the tracks. I, I had a great family upbringing. Um, I never wanted for anything. I was essentially an only child, the youngest by 17 years. I had five half-sisters, four half-brothers. My parents were older. My dad was 50. My mom was 42. So I, I'm not going to lie. I was spoiled rotten. My, my father spoiled me. He took very good care of me. And unfortunately, as I, I grew older, that became a sense of entitlement. And I grew up at a horse racing track. I grew up learning how to play blackjack. My father's dream for me was to be a professional pool player. So while kids were, were doing sports, I was practicing pool in the basement for hours. And um, my dad, I love him very much. He's still alive. He's 87. He's currently dying of blood cancer, and I'm his caretaker. Oh, and uh, I'm grateful. Thank you. I'm, I'm grateful that I'm sober to be here for him. Um, but he, he wasn't a very active alcoholic growing up. And um, he was never physical or anything like that, but he was always at the bar. And in order to make up for that, he tried to buy love. And again, that became a lot of enabling and a lot of sense of entitlement. So instead of going down his footsteps, following that path, I went headfirst into academics and school and trying to be the best I can be, thinking if I was the best at everything and and perfection, maybe dad would come home and want to be home. My parents were only married for three months. So they were just two people that were not meant to be together. They were better off as friends. And as I grew older, I learned to understand that and and appreciate the fact that they were friends. But it was very volatile in the beginning because they did stay together until I was nine. And all they did was argue. And I thought that was normal. (laughs) So I, I got perfect great A's. I was like top of my class. I graduated third in my high school class. I had full scholarships, never touched a drink, never touched a drug, never had sex. I had the the world at my feet. I decided to go to Penn State for college. Within first, my first three months there, I joined a sorority. I got my first DUI. I wasted no time. I started drinking the minute I got to Penn State and I got my first DUI December of that year. And, um, I remember calling my dad and telling him I had gotten arrested. I was under the legal limit, but because I was 18 and there was zero tolerance, obviously it was an automatic DUI. So, um, and I remember the disappointment in his voice. And uh, he said, you know, I can't be angry at you, but 
you know, I've done the same thing back in his day. If he got pulled over, the cops drove him home. Right. Now, if he got pulled over, you get a DUI. So, you know, I, I did my ARD. I did my community service. I paid my fine. And, um, you know, I was that girl that said, all right, I'll drink, but I'm not going to touch drugs. That was my justification. And I became friends with this girl who was in another sorority in my floor in East. And um, we started off by doing ecstasy. Uh, the, the people, I can't say everybody was doing it because everybody wasn't doing it. But the people I was hanging around with at that point in time, all those people were doing it. So I just wanted to fit in. Uh, in high school, I was bullied. I was bullied in grade school. I am very fair colored, even though my hair is black right now. I had to dye it for uh, a part I played in an A&E television series. But um, I'm very light. And growing up, kids called me albino. Uh, they called me tasty, all these names. And it stuck with me all through high school. And my self-confidence was very low going into college. So the minute somebody paid me attention or made me feel a part of, I would almost mimic what they did to fit in even more. And that was including crossing a boundary I never wanted to cross. So very long story short, in college, I, I did ecstasy. I did cocaine. I became addicted. I did ecstasy for three years straight. Still managed to graduate with A's. Uh, I did graduate. I wanted to go to law school. I took my LSATs. I didn't do as well as I wanted. And I fell back into the world of bartending. And uh, I had stopped doing drugs for about two and a half years. I was just drinking. And I started working at a restaurant back home. And the kitchen manager was actually dealing cocaine out of the restaurant. Wow. And I didn't know it at the time. But basically about 75% of the staff bought their coke from this, this gentleman and before you know it, I was back to sniffing lions, and I got my second DUI. Um, it was alcohol-related, no drugs, but they had pulled me over on a technicality. I fought it. They gave me ARD again. I basically won the case. It was, again, a slap on the wrist. What's and ARD, Alexis? Sorry, what's ARD? So it's a class that you go ahead and you take. Normally, it's given to first-time offenders for a DUI. Okay. Um, and then you also take an alcohol driving safety class. And then that allows you to get the DUI expunged from your record like it never happened. I see. Yes. So uh, I know the Commonwealth, which is Pennsylvania, I believe New Jersey and Delaware, um, they have ARD in place for first-time offenders. Now, I can't quote that 100%, but that's what I was told for the Commonwealth. Okay. So not every state is like that. But... The reason I do bring that up about the second time getting a slap on the wrist is because throughout my years of active use, and I'm really going to say this to family members, because this happened to my father very late in my active addiction, is that because he was so much older and old school, he didn't know about things like heroin or crack cocaine. Um, I've never done meth. He didn't really know about Percocet. He won't even take a Tylenol. So... When I was coming to him sick, he was doing what he could to enable me, thinking that if he helped me, it would make me get better, and then we could put this behind us. He didn't really understand enabling. Right. And all the times I got arrested, I really did get slaps on the wrist. By the time I was 27, I had three DUIs. Wow. My last DUI, I was three and a half times the legal limit. 
I accidentally uh, hit a toll booth going to get on a major highway. Thank God I hit the toll booth. I call that my God shot because if I had gotten on the highway trying to do 70 at a point two eight nine, there's no doubt I probably would have killed somebody. Wow. So, yeah, and it's just like all these little things that happened in my life to lead me to where I'm at. But, you know, enabling, it's dangerous. It is dangerous. And now, you know, being over four and a half years clean, um, I see a lot of personal, personal good friends go in and out, in and out. And, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll get a message saying, hey, you know, I don't have money for my utility bill. Can you lend me a hundred bucks? And I know. I said, no, you know, I will pay the utility company directly, but, you know, I won't enable. And I, I know and I see a lot of people that do it and it breaks my heart because at that point in time, it seems like the right thing to do yep. because you love that person so much. Yep. Yep. You know, and I get that. And, um, you know, long story short, Joni, I was in a, a really bad car accident in 2008. My sister passed away 10 days later from cancer. Oh. So within that two weeks, uh, started the doctor prescribed medication. And before that, I really did not know about painkillers. I didn't know about benzodiazepines. Um, I didn't understand Xanax and Percocet mixed together could create a very deadly, but to an addict before combination. I, I didn't know about this 12 years ago. Right. So I just know uh, that it led me down a path that I, I wish I know, knew then what I know now. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I started feeling like garbage when I didn't have the Xanax and I didn't have the Percocet and I didn't understand why, but I knew when I took them, I felt better. And then the Percocet graduated to Oxycontin and then the government changed the makeup of Oxys and that didn't work. And I remember being so sick and uh, one of my dealers at the time said, you know, I, I don't have what you need, but I have diesel. And me being so so naive, I'm like, what's that? And he's like, you know, H. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> he goes, heroin, you idiot. Like heroin, <laughs> I have heroin. <laughs> and... Uh, I was like, there's no way, like, no, I'm not crossing that boundary. And I was engaged to another gentleman at the time. And, um, he has since passed from a heroin overdose. Uh, he died a year and a half ago. And, um, it was just one of those things that we said we would never do. And within two weeks of that time, we were starting it. And then we started shooting it. And my best friend in the world who taught me how to shoot up at the, at the time, because we know all of her relationships when we're using are, are messed up. But she was my best friend, and she never got the chance to get clean. And in 2011, the end of January, she passed away on somebody's floor from an overdose oh. alone. Um, 24 years old. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I hit the point where I was like, I'm never touching a drug again. Like, this is not worth it. And that didn't last. Um you know, I had every good intention in my heart at the time. And since I started using doctor prescribed painkillers and or heroin and crack cocaine, I've had seven major overdoses. I have flatlined twice. I've been to jail on seven different occasions. I've been sent to state prison without felonies. I've had numerous misdemeanors. Um, three DUIs by the time I was 27. I've lost a brother and a sister to cancer. 
two of my other sisters just got diagnosed with cancer. My niece is dying from cancer. I lost a nephew to leukemia. Uh, and I've buried over 20 of my closest friends, including my two best girlfriends in the world, to heroin and my ex-fiance. So addiction and, and, you know, cancer. I know this is not about cancer, but I've watched family members who have been diagnosed get addicted to painkillers because of the cancer and it's like just this giant merry-go-round um that's that's really taken basically everything i had uh i was sober for two and a half years and then in 2014 i had to have an emergency hysterectomy for a cancer scare so at 32 years old i lost the ability to bear any of my own children and I relapsed on the painkillers that they gave to me. And at the end of that run, I was back to shooting over 50 bags of heroin a day because back then it was just heroin. It wasn't fentanyl. Uh, and it was stepped on. And, you know, I was back to smoking crack. I went through 60 grand in five and a half months. I had two more overdoses. And then finally I got arrested from my bed on July 13th of 2015. Uh, got charged with a bunch of misdemeanor charges, and I went to jail. I went to the Salvation Army rehab for one year, so I was gone for 14 months, and I have not looked back since. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For further information on the podcast, you can go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or... You can find us on our Facebook page by the same name, or you can call us at 727-314-7080, or you can email us to theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. For further information on Narcan on Suncoast, call 1-877-339-3324. That's 1-877-339-3324. Three, three, two, four. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast and get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com, that's N-E-W-M-A-N-I-N-T-E-R-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-S.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So that we could say really kind of was your point of no return when you got arrested while you were in the hospital. Um, basically, I, I want to say yes and no. Uh, when I got arrested from my bedroom in 2015 on July 13th, there was an incident that had happened 10 days prior that I don't really care about but I am going to share about it here. And um, it is extremely hard for me to talk about, but I really feel like people need to know that this is in, in effect and that this law is out there to help 
anybody and to not be afraid if you're in a situation where there is somebody suffering from an overdose to call 911. Uh, oh, man, this isn't easy. So I was with a, a gentleman at the time. Uh, he was from another state, and he was coming to visit me after my surgery, and uh, we became very close, and, and we started dating. And at the time, he he was a bodybuilder. I'm uh, now currently I'm a professional bodybuilder, but at the time he was and very big into sports and fitness and whatnot. So he had only dappled in you know steroids and and kind of like hustling on the side. He had never actually taken anything. Uh, and at this point in time, I was starting to relapse on my painkillers. Uh, I was starting to abuse them. I was, you know, telling the doctors and everybody I had pain when I didn't. And I never told anybody about it. I kept it all inside and I played the victim role and I, I played it very well. So over the next couple of months, uh, he was bringing me crack cocaine. He was bringing me heroin. And then all of a sudden one day he's like, I want to try it. And we know Misery Loves Company and he, uh, I, I allowed him to try it. And it was his choice, but, you know, thinking back sober and clearly and clean, I would have never allowed that. But long story short, he, uh, he did try it and he found out that he hated heroin, but, but loved the uppers. So he was more of a crack person. And this went on for a few months, few months, whatever. Um, I was starting to lose my jobs now. I got evicted from my apartment. I, I was slowly falling apart. Um, but the sad part is, is that when people said, how are you? I would say, I'm fine. I'm doing great. Life is good. And because I had two and a half years prior to this, nobody actually took the time to look past the mask that I was putting on. I was losing weight. I was picking my face apart. I was wearing hoodies when it was 90 degrees out, you know, showing up at, at probation, just completely like sweats, hoodie, hat, you know, I lost my job, got evicted, I wasn't speaking to my parents. All the signs were there. But unfortunately, in my county, we're so overrun with drug overdoses and people on treatment court. I mean, how, how can you really keep up? You know, when you're a probation officer's caseload is so overwhelming. Um, it's difficult. And I myself have to take accountability because I never reached out or asked for help. So that was on me. And on July 3rd of that year, um, I had just taken out a personal loan from a, uh, a local company for 10 grand. I had 10 grand in my pocket. He had come up from where he was from. And uh, I went and picked up three bundles of heroin. And for some reason that night, he's like, I, I want to get high. I want to get high. And I remember saying, please don't. This stuff is very strong. And I, I, I fought him on it for a good hour and he continued to do what he was going to do. We were at my mom's house. I went upstairs. I came back down and he was in a full blown overdose. And I remember screaming at the top of my lungs, like, wake up, wake up, wake up. And because I was on probation at that time, I was so afraid of dialing 911 for going back to jail. I was so scared and I had already been up for four days straight. I wasn't thinking clearly and I was not aware of the Good Samaritan law. 
And the reason I'm sharing this, which is very difficult for me on your podcast, because I know you have such a large following, I really want people to be aware of this law. It is in all 50 states. It protects you whether you are on paper, state parole, whether you're not. If you are with somebody who's suffering or is suffering from a drug overdose, you can call 911 and be protected. Nothing can happen to you. Um, you cannot get hit with charges. You cannot go to jail. You essentially are making the phone call to possibly save that person's life. I had Whether no idea. With them, yes. And so many people, Joni, don't understand or recognize this law. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who the same thing happened to, and she was so terrified. And she was like, Lex, I shot him up. Like, that was me. But he overdosed, and I didn't know what to do. And she eventually called 911, uh, and he's alive today. He's doing well. They're still together. They're both clean. They're living great lives. And, um, you know, she's like, I didn't know about the law. But at that point in time, I just knew I didn't want him to die. And it was the same thing with me. I didn't want him to die. I ended up taking him to the hospital. And I told my mom, I said, I don't care what happens to me. You know, I didn't know if because we were using together, I could get, I didn't know. So, um, I took him to the hospital and he slipped into a coma and he fell onto life support for five days. And I just remember sitting in my room thinking, oh my God, like, what if I allowed this to happen in some way? You know, that's not me. I was the girl who gave my last $20 allowance every week to the Salvation Army so people could eat. You know, I was that little girl who gave everything she had because she wanted to make a difference. Like, this is not what I was supposed to become. And I'll never forget it. I was with my mom, and I got a phone call a couple days later from my father that said, you're not going to believe this, but he woke up, and he's fine. And wow. I, I just remember hitting my knees and thanking God and telling telling my mother, telling my father, telling God myself that once I got clean, I was never going to look back. And I actually held true to that promise. Oh, my goodness, I Alexis, a- I thought you were going to tell me that he had died. I, I, I'm, I, no. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I'm emotional yeah. now. I mean, it's like, Wow. He's wow. alive, and he's got a beautiful relationship with his family. Um, he's, you know, gotten away from the bodybuilding, and, and he's healthy. And uh, it was such a blessing in my life. And, you know, the family came after me. They tried to get me for reckless endangerment because I had waited a while to take him to the hospital. And my judge had, you know, dismissed the charges, and he said, it takes two to tango. You know, he was almost 300 pounds of solid muscle. She's like, she couldn't. I'm 120 pounds. Right. You know, he was like, she can't physically force him to do anything he doesn't want to do. It takes two. It was a choice on everybody's part. It worked out for the good. Thank God. He's okay. She's okay. But I paid. I, I did my time. I did eight years straight of probation. I've done a lot of jail time. Um, and it taught me lessons it it taught me to to be accountable and to take responsibility and it could always be worse Joni. yeah i he, mean when he, i got he out, could have died i, I mean I, yeah yeah 
Yes. Wow. You know, and he was with me when I overdosed um, and, and I had flatlined and, you know, I woke up and it's just, it was one of those toxic relationships. And if anybody's listening to this and they're in a toxic relationship where you and your partner is using, I could tell you from experience and everybody I've known who's had their rehab romances or, or met in the rooms or whatever, I promise you 99.9% of the time, it is not going to work unless we fix ourselves from the inside out and we fix what is broken and we learn to love ourselves. I have found through my experience and I can only speak for me. I cannot love another human being until I fix me and I learn to love myself Yep. and toxic relationships can bring you down. I'm not even talking about using or drinking mentally they can break you down to a point of no return because it gets so physically and mentally taxing trying to keep the other person straight trying to keep you straight trying to fix a mental health issue or a broken family sometimes you have to remove yourself from the situation and that's what I did for 14 months I didn't have a phone I didn't have a car I didn't have contact with anybody except for you know a daily phone call home I didn't have social media I had no internet and I said, this is my time. This is for me. This is my last shot. And I wrote it all the way to the end of my eight-year sentence. I wrote it all the way. And I said, I'm going to do this for me. And I did. Well, I got to tell you, I, I, I have to applaud you. And I have to validate you. Because I think it would have been just as easy for you to be in that situation and have the viewpoint oh, well, he didn't die. Therefore, it's okay to continue using drugs. I can see how right. someone could go in that direction. And the, the fact that you had the whole opposite reaction and got yourself clean and and are doing what you're doing today, I, I have to validate you. I don't, it's not an easy journey that you went through. And I think you could have totally gone in a different direction. And that's where, you know, your own personal values come into play. And I, I think that's huge. So thank you. Well done you. <laughs> thank you. And uh, one of the most powerful moments for me was I finally shared that part of my story just last year. Um, I didn't share it to anybody other than a sponsor or a trusted support group for the first couple of years. Uh, I, I didn't share that until I was three years clean because it's so emotional and it's still raw for me and I could still hear the sound he made. And from that night that I shared that, no exaggerating, I probably had a hundred people reach out to me with a similar story, only they said, I killed somebody in a drunk driving accident yep. or... I shot my girlfriend up and I let her die and I don't know what to do. Please help me. Or my daughter died as a result of somebody leaving her behind. And I'm so angry, but I want to forgive that person. And, and the anger just consumes me, but I know they weren't right. Right. I'm not saying that you should not take accountability or, or do the right thing. Number one, people need to be more educated about the Good Samaritan law. They need to know that it exists. Yeah. Um, when you're not in your right mind, you know, Joni, like, like take it, for instance, if you're stressed, right? 
you're you're freaking out or you have a deadline for something, you're rushing, you don't normally do as good as a job as you would on a regular basis because you're stressed out or you're you're all disheveled because something happened in your life to knock you off balance. It's not the same thing when you're using, um, I'm not making an excuse, but when you're not in your right mind, you're making decisions based off your emotions, your reaction at that point in time. And I guarantee you, if you ask 100% of people that have killed somebody or have let somebody, you know, be alone after an OD, whether they lived or died, if you ask that person sober, I guarantee you 100% of the time that person being sober and clear-headed and clear-minded would say, absolutely not, I would have taken that person to the hospital or I would have called 911 or if there was an accident, I would have grabbed that person out of the car, whatever the case may be, I promise you 100% of the people would have never even remotely thought to leave that person. Right. And it's something that has happened to thousands of people across the country, but so many are afraid to talk about it because most people will look at that person and be like, that scumbag, how could you leave somebody? Or how could you let somebody behind if they're your friend or... Oh, and it's just until you're in that position, you can't think for that person. Should yeah. there be accountability? Yes. I suffered accountability. I paid my dues. I, I did what I had to do. Most people, unfortunately, will not look at it that way. And it's like, you know, if a parent's using and they have kids, how could that parent shoot up with that baby in the car? Oh, my God, they're scumbags. They deserve to rot in prison and they don't deserve their kids and but they don't see the mother or father that's dying to get clean, that doesn't know how to get help, that doesn't have insurance, that may be waiting on a bed, can't get into treatment, has tried 17 rehabs and nothing's worked. And, and that mother or father wants to die. And the plain stark truth of the reality of the situation is, is no baby, no child, no brother, no husband, wife, whatever is going to keep that person sober. Right. Until they want it. You're not going to get sober. And I share at high schools, I've spoken at high schools all throughout the country. I'm actually a motivational speaker. That's, that's what I do. I talk about depression and eating disorders and self-harm um, on top of addiction because I've suffered all of them. I've had suicide attempts. I've completely marked my body from head to toe just to feel something other than emotional pain. I've suffered an eating disorder for seven years, which next month I'll be one year clean from. Congratulations. And, uh, I, I Thank you. Yep. yep. <laughs> but I talk a lot about the different things that lead up to addiction because, you know, most people I know, and I'm not going to spit out stats, I, I don't do that, but most people I know never just walked out of the house and said, you know, I, I think shooting heroin's a great idea today. I'm going to shoot heroin. Um, there's yeah. always something that leads up. And what I've learned is, is disconnect throughout their younger years or some kind of trauma that has caused a pain or something that has lasted with them that eventually the drugs and alcohol temporarily take away for the time being. Exactly. Um, and no and little child right. goes, what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a heroin addict. That just, that's, yeah. you know, that's not, not there. Not five-year plan. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, you make a really, really good point. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, you know, it's, it's so easy for someone who is not an addict or and has not experienced addiction to look at the addict and say, 
what's wrong with him or her? Why can't they just right. stop? And, and you know, that's an unreal expectation because addiction, it, it, it takes over someone's life, you know, physically, right. mentally, spiritually. And I think, you know, you make a, a really good point about that. Now you're um, you're speaking. I know you're you're one of the speakers for Steered Straight, and we've had a couple of different speakers for Steered Straight, and most notably Michael Delion has been on the podcast a couple times. Him. You yep. you said you had to dye your hair dark. Can you talk about what <laughs> it is you're doing that you had to dye your hair dark for? Yes. So I had it run it by um, A&E Television. I I can at least talk about my role. I can't get into too much detail because I'm under contract, but I had the most amazing opportunity where last January uh, 2018, I actually got a message from Lucky 8 Television. They had found me through my Instagram, and they had talked to me about possibly participating in this new pilot episode that they were trying to figure out how to film a documentary type style uh, program on the opioid epidemic. And there's never been anything like it done in the history of television. So I interviewed for it from January until the beginning of July, underwent psychiatric evaluations, background checks, credit checks, like everything you could think of. And they finally offered me the position and they said, we want you to be on a street team. So it, 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 I, I was undercover in Kentucky for four months last year from the end of July until the beginning of October. Um, and it was such an amazing experience. It's actually called 60 Days in Narcoland, and it's on A&E every Tuesday. Uh, actually, the last episode is about to air this coming Tuesday. Um, but by the time this podcast airs, I'm sure it'll be over. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's just, it, it was, it was such an experience, um, scary and intense and enlightening and fascinating all at the same time. Um, and since, you know, the show will be over by the time this airs there, there's, um, six participants. There was two people embedded in the prison and four people embedded on the streets. And I was one of the people on the street. So I got to go literally undercover in Bullet County, Kentucky, researching the opioid epidemic and the resources and lack thereof and how hard it is for a person in that county, in that state to try and rebuild their lives after, you know, a run in with the law or multiple felonies. And it, it's, it was such an eye opening experience and so sad at the same time because you know, if you take a big city, like let's say New York or Miami, where resources are abundant, and then you have this rundown county called Bullet County that has nine different areas to it, and there's not one rehab in sight. Like, all the places are shut down. They have three meetings a week. Um, it's very, it's scary to know that there's people out there that desperately want to get sober and get their lives back, and there's just no resources for them. So that was my part on the show. I portrayed myself. Um, I wasn't allowed to use my last name, but they wanted me to change my identity a little bit so nobody would recognize me, just because I did have such a strong presence on social media, and I know a lot of people from the Louisville area, they asked me if I'd be willing to dye my hair black. 
Ah. And I said, yes, never dyed my hair in my life. I was terrified, you know, <laughs> going from a strawberry blonde to black. And uh, <laughs> it actually worked out quite well. And I still have the black hair and I love it. So I'm not ready to give it up yet. <laughs> okay. I'm assuming that people could watch the program on demand, though, even though this episode yeah. will. Okay, good. So it's called 60 Days yeah. in Narco Land. And you had a book come out? Has it come out? Not yet. Okay. Um, I started writing it and I finished it. Uh, it took me two and a half years to write. I filmed the book trailer with a very dear friend of mine, uh, Marty Norman. He flew out to Pittsburgh to help me film the book trailer, which um, I sent to uh, your director here for the podcast. And he's like, oh, you know, I'll put it on. This is so cool. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, the. It came out great. He played Satan for me. He played the devil. And my book is called Beautiful Nightmare. And uh, it's my autobiography, basically. And it tells everything from the start to the end. It tells the worst of times. And it tells, you know, the best moments of my life. Because, you know, I had a very good upbringing. I did my last semester in college abroad in London. I traveled to nine different countries. I saw the world by the time I was 22 and then there was a point in my life I was homeless and living out of my car right so you know it talks a lot to the family members it will have a tribute section to uh I asked 25 people to send me a picture of someone they lost to addiction and their you know autobiography their biography rather and you know that's going to be included in the book as a, a tribute section I started editing it and then my father got very very sick so we were at doctor's appointments and I fell into a dark, dark, dark depression for about 13 months. Um, it had started when I was getting ready to finish filming last year in Kentucky. And then I came home and there was a point I didn't get out of bed for weeks. I, I, and I can't tell you what caused it, but I had two suicide attempts and this is being, you know, almost four years clean. I couldn't figure out why there was this gaping hole in my heart. And I, I still have it. I have to be honest. I'm not puppy dogs and rainbows. Um, I, I fell back into self-harming. I, I would literally tear my body apart with my fingernails, and now I have scars from my feet all the way up to my upper body. Uh, and this was out without drugs, without alcohol, without anything. This was just me not being okay with me. And I, I started the counseling. I started the trauma therapy. I, I started all of it and nothing was working. And I just, I wanted to die. And my book, unfortunately, got pushed to the wayside. My father was getting sicker. There was a couple close calls where, you know, the doctors were like, he doesn't have much longer. But then Scott, he's a resilient, stubborn SLB that I love more than anything. You know, he's 87 and he's getting two blood transfusions a week and he's fighting. And, you know, he's like, you inspire me. He goes, I'm not ready to die yet. He goes, you and your insanity is keeping me alive. And I tell him the same thing, you know. Um, but, you know, there was a point there when things just got dark. And um, I held on and, and, you know, I got married uh, in June to the love of my life, who we had a history from eight years ago. We broke up. We went our separate ways. Life led us on two different paths. And after 
me living in Harrisburg for three years and, you know, filming a show and him relapsing after six years and he got his life back together and he was sober for a long time. And finally, after, you know, all that, we just came back together and, uh, it was like, we never missed any, any of that, you know, seven, six and a half years we were apart. So we ended up getting married the end of June and, uh, my father was alive and he walked me down the aisle and, uh, we got married very small ceremony, justice of the peace. My bridesmaid is my niece. She's 37. She's dying of breast and lung cancer. God bless her heart. She's been fighting for three years. Wow. So, well, congratulations know, not, on getting married. That's cool. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it was cool. I, you know, it's not funny, but we all have to laugh or we'll probably cry and I'll have, you know, massive nervous breakdowns. I said, when, <laughs> you know, two out of two of your wedding party is dying of cancer. Like we got to put a move on it, people. So, you know, um, God bless the two of them. And, and, you know, I'm very lucky and blessed to have a great family and support system. That's awesome. So if our, if, if there were an organization, if there were a listener that wanted to reach out to you, how do they do that? Do you give out contact information? Do you do that? I, I absolutely do. Um, so, uh, my Facebook business page is under my maiden name, which is Alexis Johnson, and it's at Fall Rise Believe. Um, that's one word, F-A-L-L-R-I-S-E-B-E-L-I-E-V-E, and that's actually about to be a nonprofit organization. I will open up for children, um, almost like a Make-A-Wish, but it's going to be for children who have lost a parent to addiction or the prison system and is being raised by either the foster homes or the prison system um, with their grandparents. So even if their parents are doing, you know, years for a felony charge and the grandparent has to raise them, this nonprofit, will, which I've started filing the paperwork for, um, you know, if a child wants to play football and the grandparents don't have money for football cleats or to enroll them or if a child wants to do dance or play a a musical instrument this program I'm hoping will provide the funds so that these children can live a semi-normal life that's awesome that's awesome thank you what a great great idea for charity I love that so that's fall rise believe on Facebook that's yep. how they that's how they can find you and then also through steered straight steered straight.org if you look at the speakers alexis is on there and yeah. she's she's available to speak alexis i cannot thank you enough for sharing your story with us i know that every story that gets told on this podcast resonates with somebody who's listening in fact we had a young man call um a week or so ago and he left a voicemail for us and he said, your podcast keeps me sane. And we don't hear from a lot of people, but um, just even hearing from one was, um, was huge for Steve and I, and we called him back and hopefully we will get him on the podcast. But I know that your story is going to resonate with people. And I, I can't thank you enough for sharing it with us. Tony, if I, you know, I just want to end with one thing. Um, And I I talk about this every time I I speak because I deal with a lot of parents who are at the end of their rope and they're scared that they're going to lose their child. And unfortunately, I know hundreds of parents who have. 
if you're out there and you're listening and you're not in active addiction and, and you love somebody who is or is suffering, you might have heard this a million times, but I'm going to tell you a million and one. Don't ever give up hope. Don't ever lose that faith that a person can change. I've done it. I've witnessed people who have done it. I have a friend who went to 37 rehabs. He got sober on the 38th and he's sober for seven years. Don't ever give up that chance or that belief that a person can make a change in their life. You know, we all made a bad decision. We might have walked down a bad road. But if I can leave you with one thing, always tell that person that you love them. And you're always going to be there even if you have to love them from afar. Because that to an addict who is in active addiction might be the one thing that gives them the drive or saves their life. Let's them know that they're loved, even when we don't love ourselves. Wow. And that's a perfect place to end the interview. Again, thank you so much, Alexis. I can't thank you enough. Joni, thank you. It's, it's a blessing, really. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with a new episode of the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Just a reminder, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you. We hope that this podcast gives you hope and that we offer you something in the way of help. Tune in next week and we'll talk to you again. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 